Welcome to the Alternative Format Podcast, hosted by Anuja Pradhan and Scott Jones. This is a podcast where we discuss doing the PhD by Alternative Format. Welcome to another episode of Alternative Format. And in this one, we're going to talk about writing and structuring your thesis by alternative format. So some of the things that we're going to discuss include um, what are the different elements perhaps that are required in your thesis and we're going to tell you about our own experiences of writing individual papers and then finding a theme across these papers um, and then also managing the wraparound document. Does that sound sounds okay, Scott? Superb, yeah, sounds great. So, for my alternative format, so my PhD was entitled Recontextualizing Consumer Escapism, Binge Watching and the Unexpected Effects of an Escape. And in, in that, I had a, an introduction chapter. So, in, I talked about the context, the overall unity of the approach, the themes. Um, I had the Method, I had a methodology chapter, and not uh, not all PhD by alternative formats may necessarily have that, but I included that. I think you did as well, did you, Anuja? Absolutely. A methodology chapter. And then I had um, the three articles or four articles ended up being my one. And within that, and we often talk about this thing called a wraparound, and within that I had an introduction to each paper. All, the cha- all these other chapters are perhaps the wraparound, and then I do reflection after each article. And I think similarly with that, Anuja, your approach i had um an overall reflection at the end of the three articles rather than at the end of each article so again you know we have that little difference um but you know both both formats seem to be okay i guess and then i think both of us finally had a conclusion chapter and that's an interesting chapter because here oh oh, well we're, we're lifting up so we've got contributions to theory in each of our articles and then we're lifting up some overarching overall contributions of our thesis as well. And we also had a statement of authorship for each of the multi-authored papers. Um, and I think that's quite typical across institutions. This is the, the kind of typical format I think we're seeing, aren't we, in Uja when we've... We've had a look around. Yeah, I think so. Roughly, um, at least for UK universities, the ones that we've looked at, especially the marketing departments or the management departments, these seem to be the requirements of the thesis itself. Um, And in many ways, it is similar to your monograph, but in many ways, it's also quite different, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the articles themselves. So should we start? Where should we start? Should we start with the articles themselves? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's start with the articles and then we'll talk about this wraparound document. Yeah, of course. So the articles themselves, I always felt they were they were tightly written, very succinct, very... I didn't have... I was sometimes envious of my colleagues doing the monograph because I saw lots of discussion going on in the in the chapters. I saw lots of different findings. I was like, oh, I want to include all of them. And we, you just simply can't. You're writing for publication, publishable quality papers. And I found that that was really, uh, it was a skill actually, it was a limiting factor, a skill but also something enjoyable to really make your arguments, every word, every line had to count and really making it succinct. 
Yeah, it, it was both a challenge, I think, but also a great learning experience. I did feel um, really sad sometimes because, you know, they always talk about uh, you have to kill your darlings, right? Yeah. But here you you really have to go on sort of a mass murder spree almost yeah. with your data. And there were so many pieces of data that I thought were either like, oh, this is so touching or this is so important. Um, but, you know, you just don't have that much scope to include um too many quotes sometimes so so you have to restrict yourself yeah. almost right how did you how did you decide the three papers themselves like was that uh was that ongoing was it from the outset once you've decided you're going to do the alternative format or did it just come out organically yeah that's a great question scott thank you um for me it was rather organic um in the sense that Again, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I did an intergenerational study, right? So I was talking to these mothers and I was talking to these daughters um, and I was trying to find this story that encircled all of them. And and there is that story through my PhD, of course, but then there were these individual stories where the experience of one generation is really different to the experience of another generation, right? Yeah. So when I started writing the experience of the the daughters, the second generation, um, that really came quite easily. Um, and I wrote a conference paper based on that. And then I wrote another paper based on the experience of the mothers. And then my third paper became one that connected the two generations. Um, so it became really organic for me yeah. how about you yeah fairly organic so the first article was around classics uh, binge watching a tv show and this idea that consumers then might afterwards go go on imdb or go searching for more information and we call this a term matt hills uses in media called hyperdiagesis this this searching around um, beyond the tv show what, you know things like what does Jack Bauer do when after his day shift on Twenty Four, or where's this part of the map on Lord of the Rings, and people go out and explore that. So that was the first paper in escaping into that world, and then the second paper is interesting because the the real world went a little bit bonkers in terms, and we called it a surrealist disruption, and this idea that things people came into power, for events happened in the world that perhaps were against our assumptive beliefs of how we expected things to behave. But this was fabulous for my escapism because it changed the context of why do people escape, what do they escape for. And the third paper was more about a, a reflective introspection on my own binge watching as well as my participants and maybe doing it alone and what that brings. So across those three papers, it was very much, the context was binge watching, but the, the linking theory was often the, the recontextualising of escapism. And it, it wasn't planned that way. I never expected events to happen um, in the real world. So that altered the course of, of the publications, really. That makes sense. Um, did you also consider the journals, Scott, for which you were writing? Because that also shaped the three papers that I wrote. And I actually wrote them according to the requirements of the journals that I wanted to submit to. So that the first one was actually a book chapter. Um, so I had the 8,000 words. Um, and then the second one was for a journal that actually allowed 12,000 words. I was really happy with that. <laughs> I could get away with some more words, right? And then for the third one, again, we were back down um, to 8,000 yeah, thank you, Nuja. Great question. Similarly, first paper was a videography plus a paper alongside it. Second paper was a classic 
a marketing theory and I wrote for that audience. I spoke to to, to that um, to that journal, used a lot of theorists and academics from that journal. And then the third paper was a short story, a special issue called a special issue call came from marketing theory, where they're looking for short stories. And this idea of consumers binge watching alone in this isolation, it really, it was just perfect. I was, I was, I was never sure that was going to be the third article actually, because I just wasn't sure where a short story would go. And I always envisaged it might be an alternative format, another paper. And then when I saw the call, I was punching the air for joy. And I did a bonus fourth paper. It wasn't a requirement. The real world changed again, and it was around a celebrity brand and transgressions around that. And I, I was quite. We were quite strategic in that there was a journal the, that eventually ended in the Journal of Business Research. And it had managerial implications for what happens to brands when they've transgressed. So it suited that that audience in that journal perfectly. Yeah. And one of the big things in the alternative format is showing the linkages between the articles. So you can't just have three or three articles that are completely separate. You need to evidence that there are they're telling a story. There's linkages between them. How were you able to tell that story, Nuja? Uh, great question. Thank you, Scott. So for me, the theme was clear right from the start and um, it was family. Yeah. That was the theme that linked um, all of my papers. That theme actually runs through every individual paper, but it also, you can see, is across all three papers, right? Um, and then I was giving you this sort of analogy, Scott, if you remember, about, um, you know, TV shows yeah. and um, episodic versus serialized TV shows, right? So... So for the listeners, there are these shows sometimes that you can watch. Just You just watch 60 minutes and you don't really need to watch the next episode or you don't need to watch the previous episode and you just enjoy a standalone story. So we're talking about Law & Order, NCIS, yeah. those kinds of shows. But then there's other shows perhaps like Game of Thrones where you need to have watched you know every previous yeah. episode to know what's happening in the story, right? So I think for this alternative format PhD, it's almost like each paper is a self-contained story but then we also have this overarching story across every paper right so that's the yeah. season story the whole story um that connects these three papers yeah i was completely the same and so this wraparound where we're demonstrating the unifying themes of the three articles can i ask anuja where when or how does that emerge in your in your phd by alternative format so for me, the theme really emerged um, from the data. So when I was doing the data collection, um, I found that this theme of family just seems to be there in the data. I I did start by, you know, wanting to discuss family and family roles and so on, of course, but it wasn't the main focus of the research at all, but it just emerged from the data and then it just seemed like such a nice um, overview of what I was doing. How about you? Similar, so I did my first study on escapism, a traditionalist paper videography. And out of that, from the next round, I, I went back into the field and did another round of data collection then. Again, I could see where there were similarities in theme, in topic, and I could see where the fit was starting to happen. And this continued. And so every time I was writing a, an article, I was also thinking about the next article of where will it fit, how will it, how will it piece together. We've 
we've got this idea then we've talked about the wraparound itself and what consists of it and we talked I, I spoke earlier of this idea of you need we had an introduction chapter and a methodology and I think the methodology is worth spending a little bit of time discussing because again that has to show unity between the papers on the methodology how did you find the methodology chapter Anuja or approaching that? Yeah, I thought that it was great that I could um, yeah. introduce this, you know, methods chapter, or as I call it, research design chapter, really, because it gave me um, this space to talk about the sort of ethnographic data collection that I'd been doing. And, you know, when you write a journal article, for example, at least in the marketing journals, you don't get too much space to oh. talk about your methods. Um, so this was nice because it gave me the space to tell the reader about everything that I'd done the choices that I'd made in terms of um, whom was I speaking to, why was I speaking to them, um, and my own positioning as a researcher as well. How did that influence my research? And and while there's a little bit of that in every paper, um, in the methods chapter, it's in much greater detail. What did you think? Uh, yeah, I, it was joyous actually writing the methods chapter. Not to suggest the other articles weren't, but I get a little bit more freedom to express myself, express my how I went about my data collection, my sampling. And as you say, Nuja, I really enjoyed There's a section and I did it also after each paper, each of the articles. There's an opportunity to reflect and put a little bit of myself into the into the thesis as well and talk about my approaches of how I went about the data collection, introspect on my own feelings around that. And that was really useful for the Viva as well, those introspections and that discussion around. And the methodology chapter allowed us in the Viva then to discuss further what were your strategies, reasoning for that. And as you say, Nuja, generally in, a, in, a, in the articles themselves, it's very tight, isn't it, in a succinct methodology. Yeah, absolutely. So it was nice to have the space to express yourself almost in yeah. a way. That's good. What about the introduction, Scott? What went into your introduction? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that's interesting because I probably wrote that, um, yeah, full disclosure, I wrote that close towards, once I'd done the articles, I wrote that more to the end. I don't know if you, well, you perhaps share your... Yeah, well. same. And in the introduction, I really set up the context of the studies. So I set up this idea of what he's been watching. I did almost like a mini literature review as well in there. And again, on this check your own institution and what they want. But I did a mini literature review of things like, I looked at binge watching, the etymology of the word binge as well. I looked at that. I looked at escapism. And then I set out, the objectives, the research questions. Um, and I showed, I remember, I'm not very good at drawing these maps, but I remember drawing this map of where the four papers would potentially fit together as well in the introduction. Was yours similar, Anuja? Yeah, absolutely. I also had that uh, mini literature review sort of, um, you know, and everything else. But also I loved writing the context section yeah. in the introduction. That was so great because, um, so my research was on British Indians in the UK, right? And I'd read all of this about sort of um, the history of Britain and Britain and India, um, you know, the history of Indian migrants to the UK. Um, and of course, when you're writing research articles, they don't want a history. <laughs> they don't want a lesson in history. Um, but for me, I felt that it was important to contextualize my research and to give the reader this view of, you know, well, this is a socio-historic study. So so here you are. <laughs> Here's a little bit of, um, you know, history associated with it. So I could cover all of that, which was really nice. Um, the other thing that I included in the introduction really was um, an overview 
table. Yeah. So I had sort of the article title, the research questions, theoretical lens employed, relevant literature, and um, key findings. Yeah, I think very similar. I did similar approach. Yeah, and uh, I think that is really useful for the examiners and the readers, right? Because um, it gives them a very quick summary of what is coming up. Yeah. Um, but it was also really useful for me as a sort of map yeah. of the documents to come. And I didn't find too much, listeners might be thinking, oh, you're writing a lit review, a mini lit review. You've got lit reviews of theoretical underpinnings in your paper. But I, I personally didn't find there was a, too much repetition there. Because in the paper, it was a t towards a particular theme or a particular topic, whereas, for example, I spoke, I wrote about consumer escapism more generally and, and its origins, where it had been, you know, looked, context it had been used in tough murder with whitewater rafting, the findings from that. I don't know if you found in the mini-lit review at the start, if you found it different to when you were writing for the papers in Asia? It was slightly different, I think, um, but there was also a lot of overlap. Um, yeah. And, you know, speaking of repetition, yeah. right, I, I really hated repeating myself, <laughs> um, but it was my supervisor, Margaret, uh, Professor Emerita Margaret Hogg, who insisted on sort of reminding the reader constantly, right, of where you are, um, where you've been, because she made a very important point, which is that, well, examiners are not necessarily going to sit down and read your entire thesis in one go. Yeah. Right? They might not have the time to do that. So it's really important to remind them of where they are in the story, what's happened previously, what's happening now. So so a little bit of repetition is not so bad, um, but it can get really tedious to write sometimes. Yeah. So I think that's pretty much all that we could say about the introduction. I don't think there's anything else, but maybe we want to talk about the concluding chapter because that's a really important one. Yeah, and again... Uh, one that I, I, I must stress I did enjoy writing this because you're taking a step back from the papers and almost, I hate to say this, helicopter kind of vision of it, but looking at how what contributions are coming out, are coming out of the papers. But you don't want, again, I was very conscious of not just wanting to repeat the contributions in the papers because they're there in a way. What overall is this telling us about consumer escapism? And I found that really challenging to write because I had to get out of thinking I've got these discrete, almost siloed, like you mentioned the episodes, contributions, then to write these grander contributions. That was really challenging. And it took me a couple of, at least a couple of weeks to work that out and get around that. So there was there was the contributions overall from the thesis, how does this make a contribution to theory and knowledge? And I really enjoyed the sections that I think came after that were uh, research limitations and I really enjoyed the future directions as well of where, of where, anybody who ever chooses to read or where scholars can take this study further. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was pretty similar for me as well. So this concluding chapter was more like a discussion chapter, yeah. right? Where you talk about the overall contribution of the thesis. So it's, again, taking it to that next level. Um, what was nice for me was that here 
I got to talk about social policy implications, right? Which which I couldn't really talk about in the individual papers because you know journal uh, journals are not so concerned about that unless yeah. you're writing for yeah. a social policy journal. Um, but I did think that my research as a whole has some social policy implications, and it was nice that I could put it in this concluding chapter. Um, because or else it would have just been left out, and we we've discussed a little bit about how much we had yeah. to leave out of these theses. And you've just totally reminded me. I did exactly the same. I was I was always worried. What if Net somebody, the boss of Netflix picks this up and thinks, "Oh, great, we've got a thesis here. We can you." And I'm thinking, I'm not writing this for Netflix. I'm quite critical, so I loved that section on social policy and a little bit of critical marketing. It allowed me to do that in that conclusion chapter. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, I'm also very critical of Netflix, but okay. uh, if, if anybody would like to reach out from Netflix, <laughs> please get in touch. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Happy to talk to you. Yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit more, perhaps, about the writing style, right? Yeah. So do you think, Scott, that you need to write differently for the thesis by alternative format? I do, yeah. And a question of, what, doing it by alternative format is when does that click when does that writing style happen and I think you know you don't go in on day one thinking I can write a, a research article I develop that through going to conferences through having peers review my work regular supervi- supervisory meetings colleagues my supervisors that are really trusted and were offered great guidance care that helped craft the writing uh, process so I'd say perhaps in the first eight 12 months I was doing a lot more reading and as I started to attend conferences started to develop my writing style and I think that certainly helps with the article side of things don't know if you've got any similar or different experiences on that, Anusia. Uh, it was the same for me. So writing conference papers really helped me understand um, what was required in order to write the articles. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely the same. Um, but maybe we should also talk about how we are writing these papers or, well, in theory, co-authoring these papers with our supervisors, right? And what role do they play? Yeah, thanks, Nuja. It's a great point because um, two of the papers in most of these alternative formats are co-authored. So I think, as we alluded to in the earlier episode, often we would write the f- I would write the first draft of the paper, um, and that would take time. You know, this is, and then I would submit it to my supervisors, and we'd be up, there'd be ongoing conversations and meetings around that first draft, and then they would review it and offer comments. A little bit mirroring the kind of revise and review process that happens in in the publication world. I had a similar experience as well, where I would write the first draft, and then my um, supervisors would give me comments. Right, so they act as editors almost yeah. of these papers, um, which is nice. Um, but we also have some colleagues, perhaps, f- who might not have been. Um, as lucky or who basically have had a different experience you know in terms of working with their supervisors when it comes to writing the paper and there might be some listeners out there as well who find that their supervisors disagree perhaps on the direction that a paper should take so what do you do in that case yeah that's tricky isn't it um not having (laughs) not having had too many disagreements i think it you have to, I think you learn through the process of doing it by alternative format and doing a PhD, you learn to to be take ownership of your work. And I think 
and this takes time. It's it's a real dilemma. You've got these supervisors who are perhaps published or renowned, and then you know sometimes we talk sometimes about imposter syndrome when you're doing these doctorates, and being able to challenge your supervisors, having the confidence to do it. But I think it's there's a transition that occurs during the journey where you become the expert, but it's developing the confidence to to, to express that. Absolutely. I agree with that. And you almost take on this um, project manager role, right, when you're doing this. And you'll realize that once you actually start working, you're you're pretty much doing that with all of your co-authorships, where you're, if you're the first author, of course, um, that is that you're the project manager and you give guidance and you decide on how things are going to move forward, really. You take suggestions, of course, you're supposed to listen um, to other people. But, but you are in charge of uh, steering the ship, as it were. Um, and, you know, sometimes that ship goes through storms. Yeah, <laughs> oh, totally, yeah. How often would you um, speak or liaise or see your supervisors in Uja? What a great question. Um, I don't remember no, no. <laughs> is the right answer to that. <laughs> um, but it was always one of those things where um, it varied depending on the stage of the PhD, that I was in and then when I was writing it was super interesting because there were times when I wouldn't see them for the longest time but then I still remember um and oh my god I apologize to my supervisors (laughs) for this but towards the end of my PhD when you know you're just you get to the zone so my other supervisor um Haley Cocker she mentioned this to me and I'll always remember it she said that when you are writing, it's like you're climbing this hill and you can't see the top of the hill. You don't know where yeah. it is. It's just cloudy. You don't know where the top of this hill is. But there comes a point where all of a sudden you just know. You just know that you have hit the peak and you are on the other side and you're making your way down and everything just flows, yeah. right? And that happened to me where there was a point where everything was just flowing and and, and I apologized to my supervisors <laughs> because I was emailing them almost every day with new material. Like little, little bits. Yeah. And I was like, today this is done, this is done. And they just had to give me a quick little okay to move on. Um, and I don't think many supervisors <laughs> no. would do that. Um, but my supervisors were just really happy to see the progress. And they were really with me uh, just being like, okay, next, okay, next. Um, and that's how we moved on towards the end. Yeah. And over the course of the project, it does change, doesn't it? Like I remember in those first few months, or that first year, I think we were meeting once or twice a month. And not all listeners may be as fortunate of that as, as that. And then, as Anuja says, later on in the project, it was a bit more ad hoc as well. Um, and it might just be short emails or, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, this is nothing to do with the episode as such, but what I found really useful um, when I was meeting my supervisors, at least initially, was that I would always go in um, with an agenda, yeah. you know, and I would develop the agenda. I was Same. like, this is the agenda for the meeting. And more often than not, I would, um, at least in my first year um, and then in the third year and later, I would send them something to read, a little bit of writing, not yeah. too much, but a little bit of writing before the meeting. And in that way, I was able to make the most of my time with yeah. them. Yeah, no, very similar. Uh, yeah. I always found it, even to this day, I mean, I'm really, I, I think 
as listeners will tell, Anulia and I had good good supervisors and great relationships. But I always felt quite special when I could see my name on a paper next to their, their names as well. Absolutely. So, and it's still not quite gone away, to be honest, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's always a nice feeling to see those names um, come out. Um, but I think that maybe we're coming to a natural conclusion of this episode. But before we finish, maybe we have a little wrap up. Yeah, I was going. To, I've got top. So we've covered a fair few topics on the PhD biotechnology format. So maybe let's demystify some of the the things we've t- perhaps talked about, and some of the listeners who might be now starting to think about PhD about per alternative format are doing one. So Anuja, do you need to publish your articles for a PhD by by alternative format? Great question, Scott. And the answer usually is no, you don't have to have your articles published, but they just need to be of publishable quality. Great. Fam- fabulous. My supervisors, do they own do my supervisors all need to contribute to the articles? What another great question, <laughs> Scott. Thanks for making me answer these, by the way. Oh, right. oh sorry, yeah. yeah no. <laughs> Good to be on the other side. Um, no, they do not. And a lot of institutes particularly have a requirement that one of the papers is solo authored. So no, your supervisors do not need to contribute to all three papers. Okay, I'll have a go at myth number three then. Great. You are bound to get a job in academia if you do the alternative format way. Sorry, listeners, there's no certainties on this at all. And actually, it's it's, it's a tough market. And we, Anuja and I, were looking at job adverts, not for ourselves, but looking at <laughs> job adverts. And inc- increasingly, and, and this is a uh, thought for about doing about alternative format, as we are seeing PhDs plus maybe one paper in, in many cases, but that is by no means doing it alternative format is that a guarantee. No, absolutely not. That does not mean that you'll get a job. No. No. Okay, two more then. It is commonly believed that a PhD by alternative format prepares the student for a life in academia. I think it prepares you for some of academia, but um, not all of it. Absolutely not. No. And I think we can both come to consensus on this one. Number one, a PhD by alternative format is an easier approach or way. Absolutely not. But we hear it a lot, don't we, Anuja? Yeah, we really do hear it. Um, And that is a misconception and a big myth. And uh, hopefully... um, from this episode and if you've listened to the previous one you'll know that that's really not true you face different challenges i think with this type of phd and it isn't necessarily shorter i was very sad that before the podcast i counted did the word count on my one and it was seventy-seven thousand words so it isn't perceived shouldn't perceive it as a quick way or something shorter it's 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 got its own challenges absolutely i agree with that fantastic i think hopefully we've demystified um, the PhD by alternative format. Yes, I hope so too. And thank you to everybody for listening. Before we end, maybe you can give us a little preview of what's to come on the next episode. Okay, great. Yeah, in the next exciting episode, we hear from the supervisor's perspective. So the next episode, you'll hear from Professor Margaret Hogg, who was formerly uh, a Nugent supervisor. And you'll hear from Professor Marie Pearsontini, who was my supervisor at Lancaster University. And they'll share their honest and interesting insights in what it's like to supervise a PhD by alternative format. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and we look forward to speaking with you soon. Well, we'll speak at you. Speak at you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs)
Thank you for listening to the Alternative Format Podcast. This podcast is produced by Carsten Prince and is a collaboration between the University of Southern Denmark and the University of Birmingham and supported by the Marketing Trust UK. Thank you for listening and happy writing. <laughs> it's true though. <laughs> we will speak that, at yeah, them. Of course, yeah. speaking with you. Yeah, oh, like all great professors. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry.